we are about, we are finishing, or I am finishing, my four weeks uh, on Exodus, and uh, Lord willing, if we, if I come back in the fall sometime uh, over the course of the year, I'll, I'll, I'll intend to, I'll purpose to come back to Exodus. I won't make any promises, but it's a great book. It's uh, one of the ones that I would encourage all of us to read and, and to get a feel for. And so far, we've looked at just just the the introduction. In some ways, we're today we're getting uh, to the good part, the the part where it really begins to take shape, where the clash between God and Pharaoh begins to unfold, and and things really begin to move. And um, but what we've seen is that in in the very beginning of Exodus. All of the questions are, are really that are going to be answered in the, the next few chapters have been raised. And the main question that I pointed out last week uh, comes down to who will, who will the Israelites worship? Who is it that they will serve? Who is it that, that has that place in their lives? And, and what will it look like? And there's a clash of answers. There's a clash of powers. There's a clash of kings that are seeking to draw out, uh, draw the Israelites into their worship. One is Pharaoh himself. The other is God. And there's a, there's a battle that's being formed and taken shape, and it's about to get to uh, the heightened proportions that if you've ever heard of, of Exodus, you're surely aware of. Things like the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea and the drowning of the Egyptians and the death of the firstborn son in Egypt. Up till now that we've been looking at how this is unfolding. Some of the things we've seen is that Pharaoh, as he asserts his power, as he asserts his power as king, as the one who has the rightful uh, place of, of prominence, of supremacy in the lives of the Israelites, that he uh, does so through uh, the forces of decreation. That the language of Exodus 1 is, is the language of God's promise being fulfilled, the Israelites being fruitful and multiplied, the, the creation language is being brought out and said that the Israelites are actually doing what God gave Adam and Eve to do in the garden, and Pharaoh is trying to kill it. And he stands forward as this great decreating power in the, in the text of Exodus. He is seeking to undo, to unmake the world and unmake God's people. And now we have our great um, hoped for moment where God's mouthpiece meets Pharaoh. Um, last week we looked at uh, Moses getting this call from God through this great event, the burning bush. And we, some of the things, other things we've seen about Exodus is this uh, God who comes down. It's a God who comes down to deliver his people, whereas Pharaoh uh, uh, seeks to decreate. God actually descends and condescends to speak with Moses, and he speaks uh, in fire. And we looked at what it looked like for God to reveal himself as fire, that, that God is a God who is um, both beautiful and attractive, like fire is, but also dangerous a God who is both um, we're drawn to, but a God who can't be managed. You can't put your hand to fire and manipulate fire. It won't work. And so we see even unfolding in that is the nature and the, the picture of the God that, we are, um, that the Israelites are being saved by. And so today 
we're going to look at now this meeting of God's man, God's appointed man, Moses. By the way, we didn't read this part last week, but um, Moses, I told you that he five times asked God to come up with some other plan. And finally, God just, I mean, Moses says, can you just send somebody else? And God, it's, it's, it's interesting how he says it. He says, well, don't you have a brother? Well, take, take your brother. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, uh, you would think maybe God might have a harsh thing to say to, to Moses. It does say his anger burned against Moses. But he just says, okay, take your brother. So now we have Moses and Aaron, and we're going to look at what it looks like when God finally shows up. What does it look like? What can we hope for? What are the things that, that we're um, to expect when God shows up? I, I imagine that many of us in our lives at some point have asked God to show up. We've prayed and, and our hope and our expectation or our desire has been, God, would you please show up? We had a certain circumstance that we wanted uh, God to deal with. We had a wrong in our life that we wanted corrected and we thought, God, will you show up in this, in this thing? Whatever it is, we've asked God to show up and we're going to look at now what it looks like once God finally shows up, at least in this circumstance. I don't think this answers every question about uh, what it looks like when God shows up, but it's going to answer some of them. It's going to point us to some of the things that we can expect when God shows up. So I ask if you're able to please stand for the reading of God's Word. The passage is on the back of your bulletin or on page 10 of your bulletin, or we are reading starting in Exodus chapter 4 if you have your Bibles. I'll give you a second to find it. All right. Starting in verse 29 of chapter 4. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work or their service? Go back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past, let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they, they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Now down to verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? 
No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is on your is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. So they met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge you, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and you have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For I came to Pharaoh to, to speak in your name. He has done evil to his, this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. The word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Dearly Father, we again ask that you bless this time. Bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Lord, lift our hearts up. Lord, show us what it is for you to show up. Lord, help us to trust in you. Through all of this, uh, help us to see Christ and his mercy to us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so here we have it. Moses has had this great event, one of the events in, I think, for me growing up and reading the Bible, it's one of those events that you think in your mind, if something like that would happen to me, that I would serve God no matter what. You know, no matter what he called me to do, no matter where he sent me, if something like that happened in my life, I would be gung-ho to serve God. And what we see about Moses is he's not actually all that gung-ho. But we have this great event this great uh, showing up of God, this great encounter with God, this great call of God, these great signs that God gives Moses to take to Pharaoh, and everything about the way chapter 4 ends, even though Moses sort of shrinks back from the call, everything about the way it ends is, is one of confidence and expectation. As a matter of fact, the way Moses and Aaron actually, actually approach Pharaoh is, is one of confidence. When the people of Israel, the first thing we read, when they hear about the signs that God has spoken... Uh, the signs, when Moses tells them of the signs that God does and, he, and that Moses does in front of them, they believe. They, they trust the Lord and they worship God. And I imagine that Moses and Aaron are, are pretty confident as they walk in to see Pharaoh. They return to Egypt, a man called and sent, sent a man set apart from God, one who's had an amazing Encounter, given the authority to perform miraculous signs. And yet, I imagine they expect a quick dispatching of Pharaoh, but that's not what happens. They expect, I imagine, that, as a matter of fact, the text seems to unfold, that, that should show that they're disappointed by the response. Everything about it makes it seem like Pharaoh could just fold under the first words of Moses and Aaron, yet they don't. And why not? Why not? Why is it that uh, this does not just tip over easily? Why would that be the case? I think um, Moses and Aaron actually, Moses asked the question at the end, God, do you not 
care? What is going on? Are you disinterested in the plight of your people? But what I want you to see about this is not only does it does Pharaoh not tip quickly, but when God shows up, it gets worse. That actually the plight of the people gets worse. That when Pharaoh hears the response, the request that God has sent Moses and Aaron to give, it actually gets worse. They go from having to make bricks, whatever their normal quota is per day, to having to make bricks and gather the straw for those bricks. They're, not, they're no longer provided for the, for the, the straw by the Egyptian taskmasters, that's not there for them to make bricks. They have to go find it themselves. You've got to figure that if you have a quota of bricks, right, and now you have to go find the straw to make those bricks, not only to take the time to make them, but the time to gather the straw, that your ability to make quota goes significantly down, right? And that's what happens. They, uh, they uh, have to find straw on their own. They, don't do, uh, they are not able to make quota, and they're beaten, so not only does their task become harsher, but the circumstances under which they perform their task are actually worse. Why? Why is it that it gets worse instead of better when God shows up? Maybe you've asked that so, yourself that very question. Or maybe you've... Uh, felt uh, a sense of fear in asking God to show up because you're afraid that it might get worse if he shows up. Maybe there will be something that is harder on you if God actually enters that circumstance. What is going on that God would actually take these his people and allow his people to go down this path where their burdens are are heaped on them even higher before they get better. Why would he do that? I think often in our own lives we have circumstances where we think, well, we think that if God shows up, it's just going to magically go away. Uh, I've mentioned this before. I think it's a common way of thinking about the, the, our spiritual lives. There are certainly voices out there that will tell you that this is how the Christian life will go. Is that when you get God, when God comes, things just get better. They just go away. The bad things don't happen. And when bad things happen, it's because you haven't tapped into God enough. And if you would just have enough faith, if you would just believe God enough, then things would go your way. All of these things would fall in the direction that you want them to. But what we see is actually, we're told, the people believed. Moses and Aaron show up, the people believed. Verse 31 of chapter 4. So this isn't a matter of faith. They believed. They rejoiced. They worshiped. I don't know what else we would ask for somebody if you brought the word of God to them, that they believe the word of God and they turn and worship. That's what God uh, requires of us, right? And yet they get worse. I guess an application to this is you've got to throw out those books, that voice in the back of your head, whatever it is that tells you that because something is bad in your life, you must have failed God in some way. 
that you must sort of uh, work up enough faith. And if you just had enough faith, if you just did the right things, then this wouldn't be the way it would go. And some of us deny that kind of theology intellectually, but we live as if it's true. The moment something bad happens in our lives, we begin to rifle back through our history and think, oh no, is there something I've forgotten and now God is punishing me and I've got to figure out what it is and if I can't figure out what it is, then I'll never get out of this. We live as if God, and what that reveals is that you think that if you're good with God, things are going to go your way. That's not what happens here. Moses and Aaron are confident and bold, and they do not get the hopeful response. And here's what I want us to ask as we go through this is why. What is God doing in this text? Uh, I think there's more our question and answer, our affirmation of faith. Uh, This is the way our our affirmation of faith said it today. Uh, There's for sundry other just and holy ends. What sundry and other just and holy ends would God have for making things worse for the Israelites? First thing I want us to see then about this is that this was his plan all along. Okay? If you have your Bibles, you can see this in verse 21 of chapter 4. This is what he tells Moses before he sends him. He says, Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But... I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord of Israel, the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. God has set out to make this go the way it goes. God is actually intended and his whole purpose and design is for this to fall out the way it's falling out. This is not out of his control. This is not something that God is is confused by. Moses and Aaron are confused by it. It's it's evident even in the way they say please in verse 3. They're like, okay, the first announcement didn't work. Maybe if we say say it nicely. Maybe if we threaten that that, um, judgment, which is what they do. They say there's... there's, um, uh, pestilence that's going to come down on us if, if, um, if you don't do this, please. They're disappointed. God is in control. God is actually intended for this to happen. And I know, I know, I know, I know that there are some who um, among us this morning, maybe, but there's certainly some uh, out there Christians who think that God can't do this. That God can't actually take Pharaoh and harden his heart, that anything that God would do to um, work on Pharaoh that would cause Pharaoh to sin, which he does, Pharaoh actually acts because of what God says he's going to do, and he acts in evil. This is a wicked thing that Pharaoh does. And, And the way the logic of the argument goes is if God acts on Pharaoh in such a way that Pharaoh does something evil, then God is responsible for the evil that Pharaoh does. Then God is evil. God is responsible for evil. The problem with that is that the scripture here is clear that God says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And it's certainly clear that God cannot sin and cannot tempt to sin. 
The Bible doesn't have a um, it doesn't have a problem looking at this and stating very clearly throughout Exodus that God hardens Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardens his heart. That it's both that that Pharaoh certainly is is not um, not thinking. Yeah, I would really like to let the Israelites go, and God says, No, no, you won't. It's not like that. He's acting, Pharaoh is certainly acting out of his own nature, out of his own desire, out of his own uh, desire for power and control, out of his own sense of who the Israelites are. He's sitting on his throne and he looks down and he says, who is God? Who is this God? Pharaoh is so arrogant and proud when he's approached and he's certainly acting out of his own sense of pride and arrogance. All the while, this is what God intends for him to do and purposes for him to do. God is certainly at work in this. And here's what happens is you can do the math this way. You can say if God hardens Pharaoh's heart and, and therefore Pharaoh does something evil, then God is evil. That's one math equation. And it, it actually adds up, right? Both sides of that equation seem to make sense. Or um, I think what, what the scriptures actually reveal to us is that God hardens Pharaoh's heart Pharaoh hardens his heart. Pharaoh does what he wants, what his heart desires, and it's evil. And God does it, and it's good, and he intends it for good, and he intends it for the good of his people. And God is not evil, and Pharaoh is. And you ask me how to, how to um, balance that equation, and I can't. I can't. There is no balancing that equation. There's something here that the scriptures have no problem with saying... That is what happens, but we don't know how the mechanics, what the math looks like. And if we're going to submit to the scriptures, we have to at least see that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. That he intends for Pharaoh's heart to be hardened so that he will not let the people go. That's what the text says. We have other examples of this. You can certainly go read them. You can read the, the story of Joseph in Genesis and read how God or how Joseph summarizes what happens there. He talks about how his brothers intended evil and God intends good in verse 20 of chapter 50. In Isaiah chapter 10, we see Assyria is used as the rod of God's anger, but because Assyria exerts its own power and doesn't intend to operate as God intends them to operate, that God judges them. And I think more importantly, we see it in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches his sermon and he says, Jesus was delivered up by the plan of God. This is something, something that God intended to do. But he was murdered by evil men. Somehow God intends these things and they're good. And yet those who are doing these things in their uh, evil intents and desires are judged rightly for them. And Pharaoh will be judged rightly for how he treats Israel. All right. That's the first thing we see. God actually is at work and this is his plan. This is not plan B. This is not God playing catch. This is not God playing catch up. He intends for it to go this way. Now we have to ask ourselves, why? 
Why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? And the first thing I want you to see is that God actually exposes certain things uh, by doing this. The first thing he exposes is Israel's condition. That, that everything about this uh, reveals that Israel's condition is, is helpless. That as pressure is exerted on Pharaoh, his grip tightens on them, and they are overwhelmed by that burden, and there is nothing, nothing that they can do in and of themselves to save themselves. That their condition is revealed to be utterly helpless. That Pharaoh, in terms of Israel's plight and their condition, has all power over them. They're helpless. They're helpless and they cry out, they appeal, and it gets worse, and they're accused of being lazy, and, and we are to see that their power is, is nothing. It's barely the power of appeal to a wicked dictator. But we also see their hearts in this. Look at verse 21. I think it's interesting how they respond. The Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh. What's, what is, you, you get, I mean, you read that and you got to think, you got to be kidding me. That why would Israel look at Moses and blame him and actually ask God to bring down judgment on Moses? One is we see that their oppression is so great that, that they don't know what they're saying, I guess. But the other is that they can't conceive of what lies beyond this oppression. And so in their minds, they can't conceive of what God might be doing. They can't conceive of what God might be at work doing. And so they are looking back to the way things were and thinking, it would be so much better, Moses, if you would kindly shut up. Just don't help us anymore. It's not doing any good. I know we don't say shut up, right? All right. We, we, uh, we do in my household. Um, so, I'm sorry. <laughs> we, um, we see that their conception of, of, of how this is unfolding leads them to think that there can't be anything better. And the only thing that they can conceive of better would be that Moses would just be quiet and go away. And that things would go back to the way they were. Can we just have our straw back? And we'll go back to making bricks the old way. I mean, there's something about this that I think is very important for us to see. That oftentimes the reason things get harder in our lives is because God wants to show us something about our hearts. He wants to show us something about the twistedness of slavery and the oppression that it brings. And the way it makes us think. They're confused. They're more concerned about stinking in the sight of Pharaoh than they are about what they have heard about what God is about to do for them. They're, they're really, I, I think, more concerned about how painful this circumstance is and just give me relief that they can't conceive of something better beyond it. Our hearts are often small in this way. And one of the reasons in this text that God 
brings about the hardening of the situation, the more, the more difficult of situation, the hardening of Pharaoh, is so that Israel will see their utter helplessness, and I'll, I'll say it this way, and their slave hearts. Their hearts that really can't conceive of freedom under the reign and rule of God. And slavery, an easier form of slavery seems better to them at this point. God often does bring circumstances and one of the just and holy ends is to show us our real need, our real helplessness, our real need of deliverance, our real confusion. And often we, we, we push those things out because, we're one, we're afraid to see those things about ourselves, but we're also afraid and fearful that what's on the other side can't really be better. God wants us to see that. The second thing, the second reason I think we see that God, in this text, that God hardens Pharaoh's heart is he wants us to see the truth about that which oppresses us. He wants us to see uh, what the nature of the power that would seek to enslave us really is. Uh, it, it may appear benevolent or it may at least appear benign in the sense that we can live and manage our lives under it and, and get along in relative ease and peace. And sometimes God makes it worse so that we can see the teeth behind our oppressor. See its wickedness. And that's what we see when Pharaoh's response to God is sarcasm. He's callous and proud. He brings down burdens upon burdens on the people. He does not care about them in any way, shape, or form. All he cares about is his own power, his own glory. And however he can use and manipulate and enslave them to gain what he wants from them, that's what he's after. And if he can do it subtly, all the better. But if not, his teeth come out. When challenged with the loss of his free slave labor, when, when, when the, the sense of uh, his power being challenged by this God that he doesn't know, when that happens, we see his true colors. We see the real nature of Pharaoh. He makes them work harder in verse 9. He has them beaten in verse 14. And then in verse 17, he mocks their suffering and just says they're lazy. Part of what we, um, we see in this is that God uh, allows things to get worse. One, and I don't think this is in, this is one of those other just and holy ends, is to show us that you have a real enemy. It's not, a, it's not just an idea. The, the, there is an enemy that seeks to enslave and ensnare and destroy. There is an oppressor that seeks to uh, kill you. And even though you're in Christ and you cannot lose that life in Christ, it's not possible. There is an enemy that is after you and he's real and God wants you to know that. Now we've talked about that enemy in three different ways. Historically, it's uh, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That all three of those are real enemies. And I think oftentimes, maybe in our circles, 
we're pretty, um, we're pretty good on the flesh, right? I think that's my take on it, is that we understand that our hearts, there's something in our hearts that, that's fleshly, that seeks to ensnare us and enslave us, that, that latches on to things that are, that are, that are sinful and, and bad for us and that, that bring us under bondage and, and remove us from, from God in, in a sense of relationship to God. But there's a real enemy in the devil that, that seeks to undermine and destroy, that seeks to break up uh, relationships, that seeks to cause turmoil and confusion among us. And I, I think we also ought to see this. Um, I'm thankful to live in America. I really am. But there are powers and structures in our society that aren't, I don't know that they self-consciously, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. But there are powers at work in cultures that seek power. That, that ultimately governments tend to run on power. And there's this subtle infection of power and hunger for it that will bring us under oppression. That I think one of the difficult things about living in, in, a, in a country as we do, one that we are thankful for, is that we often miss the subtleties of those powers and how they enslave and ensnare and how they uh, work injustice among us. Forget which political party I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a political party. There are power structures that are at work, and God wants us to see The religious right or the religious left, if you leave your political party that, that those two wings have affiliated with, those places, those power structures seek to, their claws come out. They do. It's part of the structure of the world that God is showing that our hope is not in those things. That they seek to ensnare and enslave it's always the way of the world, the flesh, and the devil. You have three enemies, and part of the reason that God allows these things to get worse is because he wants the people to see how evil Pharaoh is. Not only has, uh, have the people become a stench in the, in the nostrils of Pharaoh, but now Pharaoh is becoming a, a, a stench to them. Even though they blame Moses in this, they are seeing that this man is not one that they can live comfortably with. God is actually about setting at odds this relationship between Pharaoh and these people. That he wants this tension to exist. Pharaoh, ultimately it comes down to, uh, again, who Pharaoh thinks he is, who he shows up in the text. Look at verse 10 at Pharaoh's response. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, 
I will not give you straw. Now, the interesting thing about that statement is it shows up also in verse 1, except it's thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord, that the tension is, and this is a common construction for a prophetic declaration for the God. And as I've said before, what Exodus is, is trying to show us is that this is not simply about Yahweh versus a king. It is about a God is about Yahweh versus a God. It's a God war. It's about Pharaoh who thinks and, and intends to be the God to these people. It is about Pharaoh who is exerting himself as if he is the highest supreme authority and he's worthy of all service and worship and that when this other God shows up on the scene, he's going to show him who's boss. And we'll come all the way back around to the first point. Part of the reason God hardens Pharaoh's heart is to bring him to this point because he's going to show him, he's going to show Pharaoh and the people who's really God. And in the end, what, one of the ways one of the commentators says it is in this, one of the things that we're to see is that Pharaoh is God's plaything. That even in the midst of this circumstance, as we read it and understand that God has intended this all along, and then as we move forward and see how God is going to deal with Pharaoh, uh, we see that God is, is he's not toying with him in some sort of manipulative way. That's not what I mean. I just mean that, that Pharaoh's power, though it feels great to the people, is being shown to be nothing. It's, it's being shown to be laughable. That, that Pharaoh would think that he could exert influence and power over against God himself. This is a God war. And here's what I want you to see about the last of it. The last thing I think about why God makes things worse sometimes, why things get worse before they get better. I didn't read this passage, but... It's, it's how we transition out of this difficulty into the final scenes, the final throes of, of Pharaoh's grip on power. And we really see how God is, is uh, in control of this and how Pharaoh really can do nothing to stop God. And this is, what chapter, this is how chapter 6 starts. After the people have complained to Moses... And asked God to judge them. And after, God, after Moses complained to God now and said, God, why have you done this thing? This is what God says. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Now listen to this. God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but by name the Lord, but by my name the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of the Canaan in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians have, have hold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will be your God. I am the Lord your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. 
Everything about what God is doing is to turn the Israelites' understanding of who He is. That He is the covenant God and He is faithful and He is going to do this. The reason that things get worse before they get better is so that the Israelites will see the heart of their God for them. So that he will, that they will see. The, the, it's it's hard to read the first part of chapter six because God, it's constant. I, I, I. Everything about this turns on how God is going to show Himself as the merciful covenant God to His people. By the way, the people who just effectively blamed Him. For their condition. Who, who blamed his mouthpiece. His representative. And who then turned and blamed God. And God steps in to the situation. To show himself as the merciful redeeming God of his people. So. One of the. I guess two of the uh, sundry and just and holy ends that I sundry and just holy ends that I wrote down here after reading this. One is to show us the enemy, to help us to see that there's a real enemy that seeks to devour and destroy, but also to show us our Savior, our Savior who uh, is seeking after our good and who is steps into the fray to deliver us. And in the end, it, it, we come to a Savior who steps into the teeth of our greatest enemy and is overwhelmed by him for us. Everything about this is God's showing of his kindness and mercy to his people. Amen.